This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast. Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we have an interview with Manabu Sakamoto, a bunch of dinosaur news, and our dinosaur of the day is Sinraptor. But first, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. And since it's the end of the month, at least while we're recording this, <laughs> we want to give an especially big thank you to our supporters at the $5 level. And this month they are Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, and Scotty. So thank you all so much for your support. And if you'd like to contribute, you can go to patreon.com slash inodino and show us your support. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start adding some advertisements to the show so we can start funding some of the other things we want to do. And if you're at the $10 level and above, we're going to give you an ad-free version, probably through Dropbox. We're still trying to figure out the best way to do it. If you're interested in it, it might just be easier to listen to the regular one. I don't know, whatever you prefer. So... If you want to see some of the posts we've made recently or check out our intro video, head over to patreon.com slash inodino and look at all the stuff we have there. Yeah, keep tweeting us and connecting with us on our other platforms. We've been really enjoying our conversations and seeing pictures you've been posting. And now jumping right into our interview. We have with us today Dr. Manabu Sakamoto, who is a paleontologist from the University of Reading in the UK and the lead researcher of the paper Dinosaurs in Decline Tens of Millions of Years Before Their Final Extinction, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in April 2016. He is an expert in phylogenetic analysis and evolution, among other things, and you can reach him via Twitter at Dr. Mambo Bob, and we'll post a link on our blog. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, no worries. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, we're really excited to learn more about your paper. But first, when did you become interested in dinosaurs? What led you to paleontology? Uh, well, I've been interested in dinosaurs since I was very small. I don't exactly remember how old I was, but I've always been fascinated by dinosaurs. I remember my dad taking me to some exhibitions when I was like three or five already. So it must have been very small. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's great. Any specific ex exhibitions stand out? Um, well, I was in, living in Japan that time, and there was a specific exhibition about Iguanodon, and there's another one on Brachiosaurus, so I, my dad took me to both of those. I think it's one of those, you know, like the Berlin specimen or whatever came or something like that. You know, it's one of those big iconic ones came to Japan, so we got a chance awesome. to go see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was like, that's really where I started liking dinosaurs, but... Yeah, you know, those um, Jurassic Park films made a lot of impact on me later on in my life. Because I read the original novel by Michael Crichton when I was like 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And the film came out in 1993, that was when I was 13. And so, you know, I was very fascinated by that. And, you know, it's both terrifying, but quite fun, right? <laughs> that film. That was, yeah, that one's great. Like in your early teens, it's quite a exciting thing. And I went to the cinema to see like eight times, I think. So oh, wow. I was really excited by that. <laughs> but then I think when I was about the age of trying to decide what to do for university as, you know, as a career choice, you know, because uh, training for career in a way, right? Mm -hmm. So I went and did molecular biology because I was more um, concerned about being realistic about life and things like that. But then again, and when I was an undergrad, I actually saw Jurassic Park 3. That was uh, one of the more terrible ones out of the right? <laughs> Somehow that was the one that got me like convinced that I really needed to do paleontology. So um, 
after I graduated from undergrad, I went to do a master's at the University of Bristol in, in uh, UK. Mm-hmm. And I stayed on to do a PhD there too. So Jurassic Park was big. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I kind of like the third one. It's, I mean, it's obviously not the best story of all of them, but the dinosaurs in it are awesome. I mean, you can't. Yeah. And I think uh, Dr. Grant was portrayed as a pretty cool paleontologist in that film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Even the first one, he was a cool character, but in the third one, I think he was more. I felt more down to earth in a way because you get to see him like struggling with funding and things. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, something very close to most paleontologists' yes. yeah. day-to-day life. <laughs> so, how did you end up at the University of Reading? Um, well, there was a uh, job advertisement, and I applied for it, and I got the job. I did my first postdoc at Bristol after my PhD, but then I had a, a bit of a career break, and I went. I had to go back to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So I did an interview via Skype, but my current boss really liked me, so I got a job that way. Awesome. That's great. And how long have you been there? Uh, a little over a year and a half now, I think. Yeah, it's about halfway done with the um, position, the appointment. Wonderful. So let's talk about your paper a little bit. So the paper was about how dinosaurs were actually slowly declining for millions of years before the asteroid that killed off the non-avian dinosaurs hit Earth. I know you and your colleagues analyzed dinosaur lineages using statistical analysis. Can you tell us a bit more about that process? Yeah, well, um, so we start off with the phylogeny, the uh, interrelationships or the family tree of dinosaurs. And there's several big compilations. Uh, One particularly really big one had 614 taxa or species on it. So we used that as a starting point and we scaled the branches so that it represents actual points in time so that all the um, the branches and the splitting events are in time as best as we can get it. And uh, what we did was we counted the number of splitting events or the nodes in the tree. So that represents like speciation events. Yeah. So uh, and then we modeled the relationship between speciation events against how much time has passed since the origin of dinosaurs and that particular species, for instance. So then that gives you a temporal distribution of speciation events, the number of speciation events through time. And uh, so effectively, it's kind of like, and it's kind of similar to what something called diversification rate, which is the proportion of speciation rate through time, uh, per time unit, unit time. But we're not doing it per time unit, but we're just modeling it, the total accumulated species numbers, speciation numbers against the time. And then so we did that through a, a model statistical modeling approach called MCMCGLMM, which stands for a Markov chain Monte Carlo generalized linear mixed model. So it's a fancy regression analysis. Are you aware of regression models? Yeah, but I haven't used that one. <laughs> yeah, um, it's just, um, yeah, it's, you know, you get a Y variable and an X variable and you try to explain the amount of variation in Y using X. Okay. The predictor variable. It's just method is just accounting for statistical biases or errors associated with certain types of data. So, you know, it's a count of node counts or speciation events. So it has a certain type of statistical property that has to be taken into account. And this particular method that allows us to do that. But the more importantly, we are, we are counting for phylogenetic non-independence. So that means that closely related species are expected to have similar values. Hmm. Or they're going to have a lot of shared ancestry. So they, you know, if some two species were, I don't know, like 100 million years of shared history, and then they just split at the last 10 million years, you know, they might individually might have 110 million years of evolution, but 100 million years of that evolution is shared. So that's like non-independent. So this type of analysis actually accounts for that as well, which is the most important bit of what we did. That sets us apart from previous analysis that we actually take uh, we're first of all we're looking at speciation events, so that's more like a process rather than a product. And also, we were accounting for the statistical biases introduced by the phylogenetic non-independence. So I'm assuming that your model then also accounts for if you're in a time period, say like the Middle Cretaceous, when you might have less finds than yeah. if you're in another period where we found a ton of stuff, like at the Late Cretaceous. Yeah, we do account for those, or we tested whether there was a bias by those, but we do, those method, those are measures don't have any significance in the model. So we don't really include it in the final analysis because it, it was, didn't really matter if it was in there or not. 
that was kind of that's that's one of the things that's reassuring about for us was that the results seem very robust to things like that, like sampling bias and also effects of body size as well. We did, we're not really seeing anything because of, we have like bigger dinosaurs or smaller dinosaurs clumped together in certain time periods. So we don't have those kind of artifacts associated with it. And so we do control for those kind of confounding factors on top of the phylogenetic non-independence. And we don't really see very big effects from confounding factors. That's good. Mm -hmm. It's always good to have a robust model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's um it's quite simple it's, in a way. The formulation is very simple, so it's kind of helps in that way. I think. How long did it take to gather and analyze all the information? So, well, the actual initial analysis. I mean, the data collection and collation and the actual running of the model can only you know if you're really good at it, if you're really fast, it could actually just take a day or two to do something like that. But the, what's really time because it took us like a whole year to do this, more than a year to do this whole series analysis. And the really time consuming bit is not just the data bit, but it's mostly thinking hard and testing various confounding factors that we, we, you know, we just, we had to test everything as we could. And that kind of thing took a lot of time. Yeah. Sure. We read in uh, at least one of the articles that the results were not what you were expecting. So what were you expecting to find? So we have a theoretical framework for this. And in that theory, we have three different models that we would expect to see, or three different three theoretical models that could explain dinosaur speciation. And the first one is a null model. So it's not really our expectation, but it's kind of like the one that we would compare against, given everything was constant and there was no extinction or extinction was very low. The null model would be that through time, you have a one-to-one, -one, almost like a linear relationship of species, speciation events with time. So that just means like there's no slowdown or increases. You just have a constant rate of speciation through time. Mm -hmm. That's the null model. But the second model, which is mostly what our expectation was, is uh, something that's been known as the slowdown model. And some people even call it the density dependence model. So what happens is you have an initial increase and then there was a slowdown in speciation rate towards an asymptote after which it'll saturate and it'll just be where speciation rate and extinction rate is nearly equal to each other. Hmm. And so you don't have um, any increases in species or decreases in species counts too much. So that's kind of what's been empirically been shown a lot in modern phylogeny. So if you study modern groups using like molecular phylogenies, you get that pattern a lot. So that would be like our kind of our expectations because that's what you'd, you know, you, just because it's dinosaurs doesn't necessarily mean it would be different. What our results actually showed a third option, which was that it increased in time initially and then slowed down towards an asymptote type kind of point. But then instead of saturating, it'll then turn over and into a downturn. So it'll start declining rather than saturating and keeping in a kind of a near stasis situation so yeah. that's what we, that's what we mean when we, we were a bit surprised or unexpected result because the expectation was more of the second model rather than the third interesting and so then the idea is because they're in a decline when the asteroid hit they were in a weakened state right and so they were less likely to recover anyway yeah indeed yeah absolutely so we were saying that uh, what our interpretation of that is that because net speciation was negative meaning that there were more extinction events happening than new species were being formed. Mm -hmm. And so and then that was occurring for very gradually, but very, very long time. And that would have um, weakened them as a group in that. Even if, uh, let's say, like the extinction wiped out like 90% of the dinosaurs and there were 10% left, those 10% really weren't showing any inkling of speciating, I guess. Mm -hmm. and, and then any remainders were going out already. So you don't really have a very high chance of them being able to survive beyond that in some ways, I guess. That's kind of what's happening, I think, is that they were vulnerable because the, most of them were going, they were more going extinct than new ones were appearing. Interesting. Yeah. For all the dinosaurs, you said you looked at over 600. So it's probably a shorter list to name some that you might have left out rather than <laughs> all the ones that you included. But did your phylogenetic tree have everything in it that's known or were there some that were missing out that you would like to include in like a future group or you wish you could have included so um our tree i think it was the one that was compiled in 2014 or was presented in 2014 so it's relatively new and at that point i think it included 
maybe about 70% of 70, 60 to 70% of known dinosaurs, but it includes most dinosaurs that have ever been included in a phylogenetic analysis. Okay. So the things that's been excluded are valid known species, but they've never really been included in a phylogeny up to that point. Or it's so contentious that the original researchers that made this tree decided not to include them. So those things wouldn't have made much of an effect. But I know a friend of mine is actually, he actually has built a new, more up-to-date, bigger tree of dinosaurs. So, and it's under, that paper is still under review. So it, it won't be for a while till that's available. But it'll be interesting to see if the bigger tree would uh, make any difference. Because we tested with between 600 and another one which was about 420. And there's not much difference in terms of the patterns we see. They're all qualitatively, the overall pattern is the same between a smaller tree and a bigger tree. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want to throw in a bunch of guesses into your <laughs> good study and throw questions into it. Yeah. Well, it's possible if you're really, con you know, there are certain taxa that I know for certain that should belong somewhere, but mm -hmm. they haven't been included. You couldn't just, you can't just manually insert them and tweak the branch length so that they actually represent the appropriate point in time. Yeah. And um, if, if there's a strong reason to do so, I, it's, it's all right to do that. I mean, the original tree that we're using is also kind of built based on a expert opinion type compilation rather than um, based on uh, data analysis anyway. Yeah. Who's your friend that's writing this paper? I want to keep an eye out for it. Yeah, well, that's uh, his name's Graham Lloyd. Okay. Yeah, he done a few dinosaur stuff. He was um, my co-author on one of the trees. We The smaller trees we used is based on his and our um, combined efforts back in 2008. Great. Cool. Yeah, I love looking at the phylogenetic trees and which dinosaurs evolved from where, especially with some of the new stuff where a lot of the Asian dinosaurs evolved into dinosaurs in North America and seeing how those interplay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite funny how, um, for instance, like you mentioned Asian, like Tyrannosaurus rex supposedly is more of an Asian thing. And yeah. it's a late North American immigrant, right? And like closest relative is Tarbosaurus, which is in Mongolia and China. Mm -hmm. And other close relatives are all from like that kind of place, like China and Mongolia. So it seems that Tyrannosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex in particular, that kind of lineage was actually originally more of an Asian clade. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and yeah, and you get a lot of dromaeosaurs and things like that in Asia, which are very diverse. And it's really cool what's been found in China in the recent years. Yeah, it seems like the place to be right now if you're into new carnivores. <laughs> yeah, they have really fascinating or fantastic preservations. You can find these small animals that have really not been able to be um, discovered in other areas of the world. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of theropods, I know in the paper, the theropods, they were the ones who started to be in decline first, right? They're all start being in decline about the same kind of time. They're more gradual than the sauropods. The sauropods are the ones that are the most drastic. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of time, they're not really that far away from any of the other dinosaurs. Okay. So about how many million years ago did they start to decline then? About 100 to 110 million years ago, I think. Roughly 50 million years before the KPG boundary. Is there any particular event? I know you hypothesize a little bit about climate change starting to cause that but is there any like large climate change trigger or something that you think might have been happening around that time to start their decline well it's not really clear sea levels start tipping over basically so throughout the mesozoic sea level is increasing but then from the cretaceous around that time their sea level actually starts to decrease so that's, uh, that's something that's a bit coincident but our model really haven't really been able to pick that up as a significant it's sea level is significant, but not in the way that it describes a slowdown or downturn. It doesn't really explain that. Hmm. But there are other things that's happening all throughout the Cretaceous, like um, you know, before it was a pretty stable hothouse, but the temperature started to cool down as well, and also that the land masses were breaking up into more or less our modern configuration. So the available land area that dinosaurs occupied were getting smaller comparatively compared to things like Laurasia or Gondwana or for instance like the super pan continent Pangaea. Mm -hmm. So um, if you've got limited space then you don't have a lot of opportunities to go migrate out to a new area where you can colonize 
that new region and if you you know given sufficient amount of time you'll be able to speciate into a new species but if you don't have a lot of space then you won't be able to do that and i kind of think that that was one of the reasons that started the um the slowdown and the decline so they probably weren't speciating because of limited space but that's not to say that that's the only reason i think there are all a lot of these things uh, it's also like the prolonged volcanism and the deccan trap and all that kind of other stuff that was happening i think they were all combined and had uh, an effect together in some way, one way or another. We just don't really fully know because it's probably a very complex cause and effect. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, one of the things that I actually think, biologically, I suppose, is that dinosaurs have actually been around for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I've been chatting with people on you know, Twitter and seeing a few comments here and there and I get the sense that people are a little bit upset that I'm saying that dinosaurs were um, basically dying, like, you know, slowing down or declining <laughs> and things like stopped evolving, I guess, is the, uh, you know, the catchy headline, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it in the context of passage of time, then it's actually not that surprising that dinosaurs weren't, well, evolving as such in quotes, or that they were not speciating much. For instance, Let's take the example of like Velociraptor, for instance. Velociraptor was around like 78 million years ago. It's considered one of the closest relatives of birds, yet the oldest bird Archaeopteryx is known from 150 million years ago. Mm -hmm. so that's on average about 72, or at maximum about 80 million years apart from Velociraptor. That's a lot of time separating a close relative, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you think about it, Velociraptor actually looks a lot like what you'd expect would be an ancestral paravian or the an common ancestor between Velociraptor and Archaeopteryx, for instance. The Velociraptor probably haven't really evolved that much from its last common ancestor with birds. Mm. Yet uh, the time separating them is, should be like 72 to 80 million years, right? Yeah. Conversely, the time separating us from Velociraptor is also about 78 <laughs> million years, right? 77, 78 million years. Now that in that time period, mammals have come from a little rodent-like things scurrying and running around <laughs> underneath the feet of dinosaurs and, you know, being scared of them and all that, mm -hmm. to things that, including the eusocial naked mole rat, to the deep sea-going cetaceans, right? Bats, tool-wielding humans, you know, this huge amount of variation. And also the invasion into the sea is multiple times, not just cetaceans. You got like the pinnipeds as well. Uh, and the sea otter, and it's kind of insane the amount of um, evolution that happened in the mammalian clade mm -hmm. post PKPG. But during the, the Mesozoic, and especially during the Jurassic to the Cretaceous, dinosaurs didn't really evolve much, even though they had longer history, you know, longer time to do so. So if you put it in that context, it's actually not that surprising that dinosaurs were not speciating much, that they weren't, even if they colonized new areas, they maybe they didn't really need to speciate to a new species. They could probably stay in their same kind of morphology. Hmm. They could stay in their same kind of ecology because environment was quite stable for a very long time. So, you know, it's not a very surprising kind of result if you put that into context with uh, the passage of time in mind. Yeah, I am always, my mind goes crazy when I try to imagine the length of time that dinosaurs were around compared with yeah. the time since then because it's just... Yeah, it's such another, a crazy long Another time. example people have given is that T-Rex is closer to us in time than T-Rex is the Stegosaurus. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I use that one all the time. That is yeah, a great that one. one's like, that's a classic one. Right? Like, but that's mind boggling. It's incredible that the time separating us from T-Rex is actually shorter than the whole. I mean, like even the total duration of the dinosaur's reign, right? And that's it's, not even the whole thing. Like Stegosaurus wasn't even that early in dinosaur. No, no, it was lineage. late Jurassic, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's insane, the amount of um, time separating a lot of these animals. So considering that much time, I'm not very surprised that we're getting that kind of result. Yeah, it makes sense. This kind of relates, you found a quote by Dr. Stephen Brousset from the University of Edinburgh, and he said, quote, it may be that the effects of the asteroid were a bit worse because you had dinosaurs that maybe weren't as strong in an evolutionary sense as they once had been, but I think if there was no asteroid, you would still have dinosaurs around today. Do you think that might have been true? So non-avian um, dinosaurs, probably. <laughs> oh, I'm just quoting him. Yeah, yeah non-avian. Yeah, he means non-avian, I'm yeah. sure. 
So I think I'm kind of a bit mixed on that one. So dinosaurs were definitely going out, like they were going extinct faster than they were being able to speciate. But that doesn't mean that they were doomed to extinction or that they were actually going to go bust before anything, you know, naturally. There are a lot of animals, you know, groups of animals that have just lingered on forever, like lungfishes and coelacanth, for instance, mm-hmm. right? They've just been like the same kind of thing for millions and millions of years. And there's not really not many species that haven't really speciated much, maybe since the Devonian or something. But then they're just there, right? They're there doing whatever they'd like to do. And they're very good at what they do, I guess. And I think dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs probably were similar, especially like hadrosaurs and ceratopsians. They actually aren't in decline. So they would have been pretty good. They would have been done fairly well for themselves. And as long as there's like a strong megafaunal community, particularly composed of things like hadrosaurs and ceratopsians around, then there's always going to be large predatory animals around kind of feeding off of them. So they might have not been speciating much and they might not have had a lot of numbers anymore in terms of the uh, diversity. They might have like just still been uh, a component of the fauna later on afterwards. But then, of course, the global, there's been a lot of climate change since, and I'm not quite sure if the large-bodied dinosaurs were capable of coping with all that either. So it's really hard to say. That's true. Any yeah. idea why hadrosaurs and ceratopsians were still doing well compared to other species? So one thing is that they're latecomers. They don't have as long a history as the other clades, so they're still kind of in its infancy in terms of clade growth they're still in that kind of expo- you know exponential growth phase for instance mm-hmm. and as for instance like ceratopsians ceratopsidae is, in particular is found nowhere outside of laurasia and especially the derived ceratopsidae is only really found in north america and parts of maybe really pretty much just north america really i think not even in asia i don't think i think you're right um, and also, hadrosaurids also are not really found from Gondwana, except for like a handful of, maybe like one or two exceptions. But they're predominantly Laurasian groups. And even though their land bridges and things might not have been available anymore, if they actually had the opportunity to expand, have given more time, they probably would. Maybe they might have started slowing down as well, but they haven't. But the other thing is more biological. They have key innovations. For instance, they have dental batteries that are continuously growing, mm-hmm. uh, both clades. And hadrosauriforms have also these things called pleurokinesis, which is a joint in the jaw cheekbone. So the cheekbones will inflate outwards. And it actually imitates, mimics something very similar to what ruminants do when mm-hmm. they're grinding. Chewing but instead cut. of grind, moving the jaws uh, in different directions, they, they, they move the cheekbones. Um, so hadrosaurs and ceratopsians actually had a very efficient feeding mechanism. So it enabled them to exploit resources very well, very efficiently. And I think that gave them an upper edge on other kind of other herbivores as well. And perhaps that was one really key ingredient to their success. Another thing about them is that they're very speciose, but a lot of them are actually very similar. And the only distinction might be on cranial ornamentations, like horns and frills and things. So they had, in some ways, they had the knack to become new species with very small differences <laughs> between. And that, that also, you know, helps to become a very speciose clade. Sure. And then you mentioned before sauropods were declining the fastest. Theropods were more a gradual decline. Do you know why that might be? Could it be sauropods were getting too big with the climate changes or... Some other reason. Yeah, I think um, so. For instance, sauropods were getting too big. That's a that's a really good observation, I think, because what that means is that there aren't a lot of ecological niches that sauropods could occupy outside of being a sauropod. <laughs> so, if there's like a species of sauropod already, you know, there's not much point in having another species there, right? Mm-hmm. Or that if they have a large range, maybe they don't really speciate, they just migrate to and fro. So it's just like this one single continuous cosmopolitan species, for instance. But so that I don't think they had a lot of diversity at any single point in time. So they have a lot of species, if you think about them through like more through their whole history. But at each single point in time, they're continuously being replaced by the newer species. And mm-hmm. That's very different from things like theropods, for instance. Theropods actually have an initial radiation, very, very early radiation of different species and different groups. So even though we only have Cretaceous fossils for, for instance, things like Maniraptorans, like Oviraptorosaurs, or even things like Velociraptor and those kind of 
derived bird-like dinosaurs. They're all Cretaceous that we, you know, the ones that we find are all Cretaceous. But given that birds are already in the late Jurassic, we have to infer that the splits already had happened, at least the late Jurassic, more likely the middle, or even if not the uh, early Jurassic already. So that means that we have a lot of lineages actually splitting very early on, but splitting more slowly after their initial burst. So that gives them a more of a gradual decline because you have a lot of these ancient clades, ancient lineages still around. Uh, whereas sauropods don't really have that. They don't really have a lot of ancient clades. They have these newer ones continuously coming out. So during the late Triassic to the early Jurassic, you have these uh, basal, what we used to call prosauropods, these um, partially biped, partially quadruped dinosaurs. And they were evolving pretty fast, mm -hmm. replacing new each, like old ones with new ones very rapidly. But then once it gets into the Jurassic and you get sauropods proper, Things like Diplodocus, like Diplodocus and Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus, and all these dinosaurs were really successful. Also, things like Brachiosaurus and Camarasaurus are successful as well. But then after the Jurassic, those, especially the Diplodocus, die out. And relatives of the Brachiosaurus, known as the Titanosaurus, then start to radiate in the Cretaceous. So you see this successive radiation and decline of various subclades within Sauropoda and Sauropodomorpha that is being replaced. So they don't have these lingering ancient lineages that kind of slow down your speciation rate. Interesting. So you mentioned before there's a lot of climate change going on and a bunch of contributing factors. How can what we learn about dinosaurs help us in the present or even in the future? So I've been telling this to reporters and also to, um, it's in our Reading University's press release as well, but one of the things that I think is um, quite relevant to us is that we're finding that if a group of animals is experiencing higher rates of extinction, going extinct faster than they could replace with new species for a very prolonged time, then they are susceptible and vulnerable to mass extinction. And we are living in a world where you get more and more reports almost daily about how many species of animals are going extinct. Unprecedented rates of extinction is what one of the headlines read. And that should, you know, that, that's quite relevant that we are living in a world where there is higher rates of extinction than speciation. And the rates we're talking about here is not like comparable to what dinosaurs went through. I think the extinction rate we have facing right now is nominally high. So if some kind of environmental catastrophe or something big happens, I think we are priming our world and all of our faunal kins and everything around us for uh, possibly setting up for a massive extinction, I think. It's, it's kind of, from our study, we can probably kind of glimpse that we might be living in that kind of time period, actually. Oh, that's... Uh... We got there quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we end on a happier note. <laughs> What's your favorite dinosaur? My favorite dinosaur. I have so too many, but um, <laughs> I think I have to say my favorite, favorite one is Dinonychus. It's a close relative of Velociraptor. Mm -hmm. It's the first one. It was discovered by this famous paleontologist called John Ostrom. And he based his argument that dinosaurs were very, very agile and actually active. He based it on his discovery of Dinonychus because Dinonychus was this human-sized, small theropod dinosaur. And there was no way that it was a lumbering giant <laughs> lizard like previously. You know, people previously thought that before that. And also, he's kind of found these circumstantial evidence for pack hunting and social behavior. So they, that kind of kicked off this whole idea about, first of all, dinosaurs being possibly warm-blooded. Secondly, that it was quite likely that dinosaurs were closely related to birds, if not ancestors to birds. And then thirdly, they kind of revolutionized our understanding of social behavior, possibly, of dinosaurs. So I like Dinonychus for a lot of those reasons. Yeah, that's a great choice. Yeah. yeah. I do have to ask now then. How do you feel about how Velociraptor was portrayed in Jurassic Park? Well, it was really more like Dinonychus, yeah. <laughs> which I was thinking might be part of your yeah, reason. So, yeah, for exactly. Like so they, uh, the design. So that's one of the reasons I like Dinonychus is because it's actually portrayed in Jurassic Park almost as if that was Dinonychus, right? Like Velociraptor, even though it's called Velociraptor, it doesn't really look like Velociraptor. It looks more like Dinonychus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Size is a bit bigger than Dinonychus, but more close, more in line with Dinonychus than it is with the real Velociraptor. Yeah. So I actually really like the visual aesthetics of Velociraptor, especially from the first film and the third film. Not quite keen about the last one, but the first one and the third one I kind of liked. Uh, 
The third one, they actually kind of had this attempt to have these little feathery like kind of things on some of the on the heads pictures. a little bit. Yeah, I like it's that a lot too. A little bit of like a, a fuzz, like a integuments, like a crest on top of. I think it was the the alpha female. They had that one. So I thought that was kind of cool and. You know, obviously the the intelligence bit is way over exaggerated, <laughs> and um, I also said the uh, the evidence for social pack hunting is circumstantial, so I don't think it's as strong as Jurassic Park would might like you know like you'd think. <laughs> mm-hmm. The evidence we have for social pack hunting is a kill site, basically a dead iguanodontian or something of similar kind of group called Tenontosaurus, and. They find a lot of bite marks from multiple individuals of Deinonychus. And also, I think there are at least one dead Deinonychus at that scene. Hmm. And so, in order for such a small animal to be able to kill and eat a bigger animal, it must have been coordinating in a coordinated pack hunting manner. Uh, that's what the, you know, the idea for pack hunting comes from. And also, because of that, kills I have multiple individuals and multiple evidence for multiple individuals there. But there's also more recent needs that kind of idea has been questioned and highlighted. And for instance, like things like Komodo dragons, they're not really social. They're not very intelligent, but they actually have these opportunistic aggregative behaviors where maybe either a dead animal or a kill would actually attract multiple individuals just kind of converging onto that kill site. Kind of like vultures or something. Yeah, they're just like aggregating on that kill site and just eating into a freeding frenzy. Or possibly there could have been opportunistic pack hunters where if they had not a pack, but not coordinated, but maybe in numbers, they'll just find like a wounded animal and they'll just go and just kill it altogether. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons for a feeding frenzy scenario is because the dead Dinolycus actually has evidence of cannibalism. So it has, it's got tooth mark on its spot in bone, meaning that either they were too stupid and they, uh, <laughs> killed one of their own as well in the feeding frenzy or it got killed during the uh hunting and but then they just thought like you know it's a dead meat so i'm gonna eat it or something <laughs> they don't really care about their own kind this is pretty much the uh conclusion there so <laughs> it's quite likely that they weren't really a sophisticated pack hunting animal and more yeah. likely that they were either a kind of aggregate cooperative animals or just a feeding frenzy basically so now I have to ask because you brought up feathers in Jurassic Park. <laughs> what do you think? Like, would you like to see more feathers on theropods in, say, Jurassic World 2? Yeah, I think um, Jurassic World, I think, kind of missed an opportunity to, in quotes, kind of educate or re-educate the public, right? So yeah. since the passing, since the first two or three Jurassic Park films, we found more and more evidence of, and definitive evidence of feathers on dinosaurs, theropod dinosaurs in particular. So Jurassic World would have been a very good opportunity for filmmakers to basically shock the public with a vivid and new image of dinosaurs, just like the original Jurassic Park did. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that. They opted for in-universe continuity. So they just kind of had this weird explanation about because they're genetically modified, they're not the real dinosaurs. Yeah. And they modified it to, to so that they look scaly and like reptilian because that's what the public wants to see or something. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fine explanation for in-universe, of course, but I kind of think they should have um, put feathers on Velociraptor at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah, I agree, definitely. Especially with, like you say, there's more and more evidence, especially within those uh, dromaeosaurids that there were feathers all over the place. Yeah, I think so. And also partly my personal frustration with people saying like, well, dinosaurs with feathers aren't scary. And I'm like, they would be if that's what you saw in Jurassic World. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Um, Like, you don't want to cuddle up to a raptor, (laughs) falcon or maybe not falcon, but like an eagle, bold eagle, definitely not. (laughs) One of those big hawk eagle owls would look very scary, too. Exactly. They still have big teeth and claws regardless of if they have feathers. (laughs) Yeah. So you, it's not necessary that, you know, fuzzy Tegumen looks scary. If you make it, it's, it's possible to be scary with feathers, I think. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really enjoyed learning more about your paper. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So now jumping into the news, our first news item is pretty related to the interview we just had. It's titled... Biogeochemical significance of 
Pelagic Ecosystem Function, an End Cretaceous Case Study. It's kind of a tongue twister. It was published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, which is a bi-weekly journal, I think is why that B is there. Not really sure. But it's open access, so hooray. Got to read the whole thing. It was written by Michael J. Henahan and others. Like I said, it's kind of related to the interview we just did about how the dinosaurs went extinct and what was going on with the environment. This article focused on the impact of carbon dioxide at the end of the dinosaur's reign, and they point out that both the Chicxulub impactor and the massive volcanic eruptions going on in India, which are called the Deccan Large Igneous Province, coincide with the mass extinction. So we know that volcanic eruptions add massive amounts of carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide to the air, which can cause some pretty big changes in the environment, but the authors report that the Chicxulub impactor released those chemicals as well as nitrous oxides instantaneously instead of over the estimated 100,000 plus years that the Deccan traps were formed over. And I want to give a quick chemistry background about this. When the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases, a similar increase in carbonic acid occurs in the oceans. And this can be a really big problem since things in the ocean are really fine-tuned to a specific pH. But luckily there are things in the ocean like coral that take in carbonic acid and turn it into calcium carbonate, but very slowly. And in this process they can prevent the ocean from getting too acidic. They're kind of the buffer of the ocean, keeping the pH just right for all the other animals and plants in there. But the problem can be if you dump a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere really quickly, kind of like people are doing right now, <laughs> some of these mechanisms can't keep up and the ocean starts to acidify more quickly than it can be removed by some of these natural animals and plants that live in it. So ultimately, the scientists had a lot of data and models to look at what happened with the carbon dioxide output of these Deccan traps. And they agreed that the ocean life could have absorbed the carbonic acid fast enough to prevent an extinction event. So basically, over that 100,000 year period, even though a lot of carbon dioxide was going into the atmosphere, since it was spread out over a long period of time, the systems in the ocean would have been able to keep up with it and it probably wouldn't have been a problem. On the other hand, the Chicxulub impact would have caused a much bigger problem, and we saw some really big effects, like 90% of the plankton and nanofossils that contain calcium carbonate being wiped out right at that time when the Chicxulub impact happened. I like to end on a good quote, so here we go. They said, quote, Besides the very different timescales of these environmental perturbations, talking about Chicxulub versus the Deccan traps, a critical difference is that the Chicxulub impact coincides with a major mass extinction and late Cretaceous Deccan volcanism does not, end quote. So a pretty definitive way to say, yeah, there was a mass extinction, both of those things were going on then, but it lines up exactly with the Chicxulub impact and it doesn't line up exactly with the volcanism. And on top of that, looks like the ocean could have kept up with the acidification anyway. So pretty interesting. It's kind of nice to see more and more of these pieces of evidence pointing towards the Chicxulub impact being the one and only real cause of the extinction rather than I remember growing up and there were all these different theories. I'm still excited to see what that team finds that's digging into the Chicxulub peak ring, but I haven't seen much yet. Last week we talked about a baby Scipionix, and this week we have a baby Titanosaur. So it's a good time if you're interested in baby dinosaurs. This article is titled, Precocity in a Tiny Titanosaur from the Cretaceous of Madagascar, and it was published in Science, but it's behind a paywall, so some of this comes from Discoverer magazine, where I could get at some of that good stuff. <laughs> it was written by Christina Curry Rogers and others, and they found a Rapetosaurus that is only 35 centimeters tall at the hip, which is less than 14 inches tall. So you got a titanosaur. It's about a foot tall. Pretty cool. Pretty cute. Yeah. By comparison, a full-grown adult would have been more than 10 times that height, 
Rapetosaurus wasn't actually that big of a titanosaur. I mean, it's a huge animal, but there are bigger. They say that it appears that it was precocial, meaning it could have started feeding itself almost immediately, which is the opposite of theropods and ornithischians that appeared to take care of their young for a while after they were born. They didn't have to grow as fast. Yeah, and I think one of those theories was that tyrannosaurs and stuff would have had to learn how to hunt and maybe other animals would have seen them as a threat and tried to kill them and things. Could be. Also, baby sauropods probably didn't want to be underfoot of adult sauropods. Oh yeah, that could be. (laughs) This specific baby was estimated to have weighed about 3.4 kilograms or 7.5 pounds at birth and unfortunately, they think it starved when it reached about 40 kilograms or 88 pounds a few weeks later. Oh, no. Yeah, not a great way to end, but it was estimated between 39 and 77 days old when it started fossilizing. The bones were originally recovered from the Mavarano Formation in Madagascar between 1998 and 2003, but they were misclassified and put into storage until Rogers rediscovered them in 2012. And I couldn't really specifically find the details, but it looks like she might have been the one who originally found these too, or at least her team might have, because in 2001, she was the one who was the lead author on the original discovery of Rapetosaurus from the same area. And so in 2012, when she was looking through some of the fossils, She recognized that the bones were a miniature version of these ones she had formerly described, and she says that they are remarkably similar to the adult bones. I didn't see an exact list of the bones, but it looks like they found several leg bones, some vertebrae, and possibly part of a hip, but I couldn't really tell what the last bone was. The similarity of the bone proportions is what led them to believe that the baby was pretty much self-sufficient, and this baby was really just like an exact miniature titanosaur. So they describe how all of the bones are basically a scaled down version. It's not like some dinosaurs and a lot of birds where they have the much bigger head and the little tiny wings and stuff like that and the big eyes. This one was really just a miniature titanosaur. It was already doing its thing and just growing as fast as it could. I don't know what's cuter, like a scaled down titanosaur or a a baby dinosaur with the big eyes the big eyes i think are cuter could be but it'd be so crazy to see the two side by side yeah it would definitely be really cool to see the miniature miniature adult looking one Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so we're getting a lot of these baby finds it's pretty cool to see i wonder what other ones are waiting in museums or out in the wild hopefully more sauropods Yeah, I could go for a baby ankylosaurus. Yeah, that'd be cute, too. I'd like to know what kind of osteoderms it had. (laughs) Might not have had any. Yeah. So next, paleontologist Kenneth Lacovara, who discovered Dreadnoughtus. You might remember Dreadnoughtus as the giant dinosaur whose name means fear nothing because it was so big. He gave a TED Talk recently about how the past gives us perspective and humility, which is kind of understandable. You see pictures of him next to one bone of dreadnoughtus and this bone is like twice his size Mm -hmm. so he talks about how crazy it is that a giant dinosaur is buried for 70 million years and then humans evolved and became smart enough to dig up these bones and figure out what it was and he also talked about how dinosaurs died because of a random asteroid basically he said and how they didn't have a choice it just kind of happened But with humans, now we are facing different climate changes and other things, but we have a choice and we can kind of help ourselves from going extinct. So, interesting points. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think about that a lot, actually, how humans are kind of the only animals, at least that we know of, that could have prevented an extinction event from happening and what we would need to do to kind of control the eventualities. Yeah. (laughs) Although dinosaurs lasted for a really long time without having any of that. We might end up just killing ourselves off with some of this fancy technology much quicker than the dinosaurs (laughs) got taken out by a random event. (laughs) Hard to say. So next, Inverse shares a list of five places that you can go to dig for dinosaurs. Sites include the Badlands of South Dakota, where you can keep up to $50 worth of fossils that you find per day. 
and any big finds that you have go to a museum. There's also Mongolia, where you can go with tour operators to look for fossils, but you are not allowed to keep anything you find. There's Hell Creek Formation in Montana, where you can do a two-month-long dig with the Paleo World Research Foundation. You can also just join for the day if you want. And there's Manitoba, Canada, where you can go on hunts with the Canadian Fossil Discovery Center. And last, also Death Valley, California, where 15 people at a time can go on day-long hikes with the National Park Service. And I know at least one listener in the UK was disappointed there wasn't anything in Europe. Yeah, I think there just aren't as many big dinosaur quarries and things going on in Europe. Could be. It's a little bit less to go around because Europe was just a series of islands for most of the time dinosaurs are around. So Yeah, there's some cool places, though, like Jurassic Island. Yeah, and we see a lot of discoveries out of the UK along the cliffs and things, but I guess they have enough paleontologists to cover what they have. <laughs> they don't need the public nosing around. There might be some things that just wasn't covered in this particular article. That could be, too. Yeah. yeah. Next up in the news... Five people in Texas were charged with stealing dinosaur fossils from Utah, according to Deseret News. This group went twice to the school and institutional trust lands, and the first time they took fragments that were worth less than $500, and then the second time they took bones that were worth more, about $2,500. That's not cool. Good thing they got caught. Yeah. Next, there's a couple fire-related stories. So first, in British Columbia, some paleontologists are angry because campers lit a fire very near to some dinosaur tracks, which could ruin the site. And the footprint that may be damaged is of a tyrannosaur. It's 23.6 inches or 60 centimeters long. So to help prevent this in the future, paleontologists are pushing for legislation to make it a crime to put the site at risk. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder what they kind of have in place right now. Like, how would you know there are dinosaur footprints nearby and things like that? Is is it really well marked or is it just like, well, they were camping in a camping area and didn't realize it kind of thing? That's true. Yeah, I don't know. Because to hear some of these stories, it sounds like they're just in a national park. And if you know where to look, you see them. If you don't, you probably just totally miss them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe part of the push for the legislation will also include a push for better signage or something. Yeah, you definitely would need to do that as well. So the other fire, this one damaged Delhi's National Museum of Natural History. Nobody was hurt, which is good, because the fire started a few hours before the museum opened. But there is a lot of damage. It took three hours to put the fire out, partly because the museum is being renovated, so not all of its sprinklers are working. And the museum has a 160-million-year-old dinosaur fossil and some other exhibits, so hopefully those are okay. The news article didn't go into depth, just that there was damage. Yeah, if they put it out within three hours, hopefully that was quick enough. I guess it depends how quickly it was growing, because three hours can be enough time to really do a lot of damage, or it could just be a small blaze. Yeah, and where the fire started and how big the building is, yeah. How close it was to the exhibits, yeah. In happier news, the Cleveland Museum of Natural History got its stegosaurus known as Steggy back, greeting visitors at the entrance. So Steggy's been with the museum for 50 years, but has been gone the last 2 months to get new paint and repairs. And he's 18 feet long, 10 feet tall, and he weighs half a ton. In the picture that the museum shared, it looks like he's smiling. So it's a uh a reconstruction of a stegosaurus, not an actual stegosaurus fossil. Oh, no, it's a statue. Gotcha. And painted orange with a smile. <laughs> In Australia, at the Workshops Rail Museum, which is part of the Queensland Museum, another campus or something like that, visitors could see dinosaurs getting repairs. There's 20 dinosaurs, including Australovenator, that spent a few weeks or up to six months at the workshop, where technicians climbed, quote, into the belly of the beast to repair sensors, skins, and electronic elements of each dinosaur, end quote. This is according to QT. And they made them look lifelike and kind of fix them up in time for another exhibition at the Queensland Museum, which will open on June 21st. In games news, Tilting Point and Pococo Studio released a new game called Dino Bash, and in this game you can command an army of dinosaurs with the goal of protecting your egg from humans. It's a castle defense game, except dinosaurs can't build castles. <laughs> but on the flip side, you can command a T-Rex. That sounds pretty fun. Looks like it's out on iOS and Android, so 
You can get that on your smartphone. Cool. Sounds like it could be potentially addicting. Yeah. And cost me money. Yeah. I'd be like that kid who spent a lot of money on that Jurassic Park Builder game. You already are that kid. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. There's more Jurassic World 2 rumors. This time, there's one about dinosaurs possibly being the alpha species in the world and the world being somewhat apocalyptic, which we've talked about before, but now I've seen it in writing. J.A. Bayona also will be the director, so other films of his include the horror film The Orphanage and a disaster film called The Impossible. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think Jurassic World 2 could be somewhere in the middle. Even scarier. Maybe. Next, Into Film created a PDF full of activities related to the good dinosaur. According to their post, quote, This guide is useful for exploring topics including art and design, geography, design and technology, history, in addition to highlighting themes surrounding the natural world, community, growing up, family and friendships, life and death, travel and exploration, and physical health. It's quite a PDF. Yeah. Nothing gets kids going quite like PDFs. <laughs> there must be a lot of activities. Yeah. Britain's Got Talent recently featured a dancing dinosaur as part of a dance troupe. The troupe's called Bespoke Candy. And they did a performance with a Flintstone theme. So all the people were dressed in Flintstone-like costumes, and then they had fire breathers and acrobats. And then the dinosaur came out as somebody in a T-Rex suit, and the T-Rex was mostly bouncing and grunting. Mm. Pretty entertaining. The reactions of people to the dinosaur were pretty funny. A lot of mouth open. Oh my goodness. Mm. And last, Geekology wrote about dinosaur-shaped lamps, which are available from Firebox, and that's the same company that sells the hatching dinosaur candle. These night lamps cost $43 each, and you can choose from a T-Rex, a Potosaurus, or a Triceratops. Apparently, though, they only have a UK-style plug, so if you don't live in the UK, you will need an adapter. Boo. Should make a US version. <laughs> I was looking for these the other day. Oh, yeah? For a gift for somebody. And you ended up getting a boring LED lamp. Because <laughs> I couldn't find any good dinosaur ones. Should have done more searching. No. Oh. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work. So it got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people. So it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy. Mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But 
a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food, so I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short, so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. Now on to our dinosaur of the day, Sinraptor, which is a request from Keegan via Facebook. So thanks, Keegan. Sinraptor's name means Chinese thief. There's two species. There's Sinraptor dongai and Sinraptor hepagensis. Philip J. Curry and Xian Zhao described Sinraptor in 1994. They named dongai in their 1994 paper a new carnosaur, Dinosauria therapoda, from the Jurassic of Xinjiang, People's Republic of China, published in the Canadian journal Earth Sciences. The holotype was found in the Shishugou Formation during a joint Chinese and Canadian expedition called the Dinosaur Project in 1987, and this formation means Stone Tree Ravine. The Sinraptor Dongai skeleton was mostly complete, minus a lot of the tail and arms, and the holotype was found lying on its right side. It had a skull that was almost 36 inches or 90 centimeters long. The species name is in honor of Dong Jiming, a paleontologist, and Dong Jiming worked to describe the dinosaur Yangchuanosaurus, which Yangchuanosaurus and Sinraptor are closely related. So actually, Sinraptor hepangensis was originally named Yangchuanosaurus hepangensis in 1992 because they're so closely related, but then they were renamed in Curry and Zhao's paper because they found new material that more closely resembled Sinraptor than the holotype for Yangchuanosaurus. The new material that they found for Sinraptor hepangensis includes a skull, axial skeleton, pectoral and pelvic girdles, and left femur. Sinraptor is not actually a raptor, even though it has raptor in its name. That means it's not a dromaeosaurid. And that's not the first time that a non-dromaeosaurid has raptor in its name. Another example is Fukui raptor. It's so catchy. How can they not resist? I guess so. <laughs> so Sinraptor was a theropod that lived in the late Jurassic. It's an allosauroid theropod that is more primitive than allosaurids such as Allosaurus and Acrocanthosaurus. Its premaxilla had four teeth, which is why it's considered more primitive. The closest relative is another theropod that was found in China, Yangchuanosaurus, but Sinraptor had a longer lower skull. Sinraptor was bipedal, and it was about 10 feet or 3 meters tall, and 23.5 feet or 7.2 meters long, but this is based on a not fully grown Sinraptor. It was probably a top predator, though not the largest necessarily in its habitat, and it probably hunted smaller dinosaurs and juvenile sauropods. Other animals that lived around the same time were turtles, lizards, sauropods related to Mementosaurus, Hypsilophodonts, and mammals. They lived in a mild climate that had seasons, and the Sinraptor dongai specimen had 25 partially healed bite wounds, probably from fighting with other Sinraptors over food or territory. And it had a lot of head wounds. It had puncture wounds in its skull. It also had a broken rib. You can see a Sinraptor hepangensis at the Jigong Dinosaur Museum in Jigong, China. Sinraptor is part of Carnosauria, a group of allosaurs and close relatives that lived in the Jurassic and Cretaceous, and this group includes Gigantosaurus and Tyrannotitan. They had large eyes, long narrow skull, and thighs that were longer than their shins. Sinraptor is also part of Metriacanthosauridae. These are large predators, some as large as 33 feet or 10 meters. And they're part of the clad Sinraptoridae. Sinraptorids are large theropods that live in the Jurassic and Asia. Again, similar to Allosaurids and more derived than Megalosaurids. And this group includes Sinraptor and Yangchuanosaurus, not surprisingly. Cool. And our fun fact for the day comes from the article titled Triggering of the Largest Deccan Eruptions of the Chicxulub Impact by Mark A. Richards and others. And in the article, they show that most of the Deccan eruptions may have resulted from the Chicxulub Impact. From studying the Deccan traps, and traps I didn't mention early, but it really is just material left over from the eruptions there's a whole reason why they're called traps, but it's not like something was trapped in it or they're trapped somewhere. It's just, it's really just rock. It's estimated that at least 500,000 cubic kilometers or 120,000 cubic miles of lava flows occurred over about a 100,000 year period. 
And for fun, in episode 68, we talked about how 48,000 cubic miles of material were redistributed by the Chicxulub impactor, and that could have covered all the land on Earth in more than four feet of debris. Well, these eruptions could have covered all the land on Earth in 11 feet or three meters of lava, which is an insane amount of lava. Of course, this took much longer than the Chicxulub impactor to go through the whole process 100,000 years versus who knows, a couple of days, but still a ton of material. And that's why the Deccan traps are talked about so often, because they're such a huge geological event. And a lot of the eruptions might have been triggered by the Chicxulub impact. It's almost on the exact opposite side of Earth from the Chicxulub impact. So you can kind of imagine a big rock hitting one side and then lava squirting out the other side. Crazy. It's an oversimplification, but it's cool. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, you want to learn more about dinosaurs, then please support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader